tonight we're wrapping up our series on the Holy Spirit. This is our sixth week of addressing this subject. Uh, let me just remind you really quickly of where we've been. In week one, we looked at the power of the Spirit. In week two, we looked at the role of the Spirit. In week three, we tried to imagine what it would look like to have a life that was empowered by the Spirit. In week four, we started to ask some deeper questions like, why isn't the power of the Holy Spirit more evident in us, in our churches? Kind of really asking questions that seem somewhat obvious, but we don't want to talk about them most of the time. Why is it that it seems that we could talk about this great power, but when we look around, it does not seem evident. We use that word because we know that God does what God does. But at least in most part, it seems like most of us are operating on our own power. And in the fifth week, we actually started to ask practically, this was last week, how can I be filled with the Spirit? Give me some practical tips. And we looked at some of the authors we've been reading to glean practical tips, and we looked at some scripture. So tonight, what I want to do is finish up the rest of your questions, because you asked a lot of them that we haven't been able to touch on, so I'm going to move through them quite quickly, if I could. But I still invite you to stop at any time and add to something or ask something deeper of something I say. First, I want to just remind you that we read a bunch of books for this series. We. I use that kind of loosely. We. Um, but Monique, in the first week, asked if you could pick one book. Can you tell me which one you're going to pick? So I would actually pick Forgotten God by Francis Chan. Uh, you know that in the past, I've kind of poked fun at Francis Chan. Some people ask me why. Uh, I'm just not a fan of stream of consciousness speaking. I feel like sometimes we need to prepare better and maybe just do better. But apparently, if you take a stream of consciousness speaker and you stick an editor on them, the book is pretty good. All right? <laughs> if I were to pick one book, and I read, like you said, I've, I read four of them. If I was going to pick one that I think would help you the most and is specifically related to the Holy Spirit, I would pick his book. So it gets my recommendation. Um, there are other books we read. <laughs> um, the one that we might touch on tonight is this one on perspectives on spirit baptism. So I'm going to touch on that topic tonight. This is a long book written by five theologians who are each responding to one another from different perspectives about spirit baptism. I will talk about it briefly because so many of you asked, but if you want more information, this is the book. It's like Exodus in a book where five people get in a room and they all come from different perspectives and they work against each other. I think that's a great way to learn. It is a little kind of high-minded. But if you really want to dive into the topic, this is it. Some of you still have questions about the Trinity. I've told you check out our series on the Trinity or read The Forgotten Trinity by James White. And if I have one other book to recommend to you tonight, other than Francis Chan, it's Sky Jathani's book, With. You know, throughout this whole series, I've been saying that one of the problems we have of relating to the Holy Spirit is we need to spend a life with the Spirit to see the power of the Spirit evident in our life. And most of us would not have much of an idea of how to live with God. In fact, that's what the whole book is about. He spends his book talking about how people live for God. People live under God. People live over God, which I thought would never apply to me until I read it. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's, there's some truth there too. People live from God, just using God to get what they need out of life. He talks about what it means to live with God. Just reading the other postures like from or for or above or under was so enlightening to show me how many different ways I kind of misunderstand how the relationship with God is supposed to go and how many things that we've talked about in this room, how many of the things we carry as baggage, for lack of a better word, come from having a wrong perspective. So 
If you want to read a book about the Holy Spirit, read Francis Chan's. If you want to read a book that might change the very way you relate to God, I would highly recommend this book, With, by Sky Jathani. Uh, you probably never heard of Sky. I say it's because he's not the pastor of a megachurch. That's why you probably never heard of him. Uh, he is the managing editor of Leadership Journal, which is a magazine for pastors. I've read his works in editorial form for years and thought, this guy's a prophet. Uh, he's very prescient, has a lot of insight. When you read him in a book, even better. So highest recommendation, check that out. It might actually make a huge impact on the way that you see and relate to God. Okay, let's go to your questions. Now, whenever we try to wrap up a series, remember, you asked all these questions, so don't get mad at me if there's a lot of questions, right? I know some of you are like, hey, you see what time it is? So to help those of you who want to be efficient, I've added a little meter over to the side of the screen to kind of show you the percentage completed. So that kind of like when you're downloading a file, you'll be able to follow along and know how we're doing on answering the questions, okay? I know because I can see it in your face. Like, look, you asked the questions. I read all these books to answer them. Don't look at me like I'm taking up your time, all right? It's, it's similar, yes, you remember. So let me answer some of your questions. First one, what are the roles and responsibilities of the Holy Spirit? This is just some of it is in review. This is the key question that I think is underneath most of your questions. So this is the only one I'm going to answer in depth. We think the Holy Spirit is one thing or another, for those of us who have given any thought. In our conversation, we listed 18 roles that the Spirit had and cited the verses. And if you go back to the second talk, you'll see that we reread all of these scriptures to go with it. So there is a lot that the Holy Spirit does. Just to give you a little bit of perspective, we said he indwells us as believers. He reminds us of Jesus' teaching. He testifies about Christ. He convinces the world of their sin and their need for Jesus. He guides us into all truth. He speaks what's been given by Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. He brings us to faith. He gives us spiritual gifts. He helps us in our weakness. It goes on and on and on and on. And, because I want you to have a little takeaway, I actually wrote these down on a little slip of paper. So you can keep them throughout this conversation because you'll see these questions, a lot of them relate to the fact that we actually don't know anything about the role of the Spirit, so we keep asking questions from a different perspective. They have assumptions built in. So I wrote them down on a piece of paper for you. There you go. Because I think if you, t if you actually spend some time reading those verses, it'll bring to mind. I hope the Spirit will illuminate for you, since the Spirit inspired those words, will illuminate for you what it is the Spirit does. Okay, here's some other questions. We've answered most of these. Does the Spirit have a personality? We said yes. The Spirit can be grieved. The Spirit can be blasphemed. The Spirit can be quenched. The Spirit can be saddened. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is a person, does have a personality. What is the name of the Holy Spirit? We listed 19 different names we found in the New Testament. There are others I didn't list. So the Spirit has many names. One question was, is the Holy Spirit an extension of the power of Christ? No, the Holy Spirit is distinct. Yes, to the degree the Trinity and the triune God is one, but it seems that they've allocated different things that they do amongst themselves. So we can't think of the Spirit as just an extension of Christ. The Spirit is a distinct person within the Trinity. We ask these questions. To what extent is the Holy Spirit responsible for our ability to experience God, faith, and belief? That's why I passed out the paper. Look at all the things the Spirit does. Uh, that go to directly to how we experience God and faith. One of those is we could not come to faith were it not for the Spirit, it says. So that's an important one, but there's many others on that sheet. These three troubled us a little bit. 
Why is the Holy Spirit's work hidden or difficult to discern? Why is the Holy Spirit least known or least talked about? Why has the church failed so miserably teaching about the Holy Spirit? And it begins with this answer. You know, the first thing, if you look on even on that sheet of paper, the Spirit's role is to glorify Christ. It's, it seems that a decision has been made or there's something going on within the triune God that says that the Spirit will glorify Christ and point to Christ and point us to Christ and bring us into truth about Christ. So maybe the Spirit, he wants to point to Christ in that way. And that Jesus said that he would. So maybe that's one reason we don't know so much because he's not as manifest perhaps, but he does have a lot of roles if you look at the, the things that we talked about. But I think for a long time the Spirit's been absent from our teaching. Uh, tonight I'm going to talk about Pentecostalism a little bit in response to your question about spirit baptism. You know, whatever you think about it, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, they did reawaken our hunger to know more about the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are people that actually use the word embarrassed when they talk about how the church seemed to deal with the Holy Spirit. The church was almost embarrassed of the Spirit. Didn't know what quite to make of the Spirit. For a long, long time we buried our teachings of the Spirit. And most of the churches we probably go to don't know what to do with the Spirit either. I think part of it is because they think that there's just no middle ground between completely ignoring the Spirit or ending up in some sort of holy laughter rolling around in the aisles and having an experience like that. So people just kind of don't know what to do with it. And that's why we have such a hard time articulating the Spirit. I would say the other reason is because it would take a series like this or reading a book, which would be even better, to really dive into it. And we just don't have time for that. I mean, as, a, as churches, we just don't have the kind of time to pour into this area. It's easier to deal with things that people think they need than to introduce them to a part of God that, as Francis Chan says, is a forgotten part of God. So those are some of the reasons I think it's least known, least talked about. Part of it is the very function and role of the Spirit, but a lot of it is on us. Last one on this screen. What are some of the clear verses that detail the Holy Spirit and how we should interact with the Spirit? They're on that sheet of paper. I put the verses down for you. And we read quite a bit of scripture in all of the different weeks so we can look at that. Here's a few more that we covered in the third week. We asked, to what degree do we have an influence on the experience or drawing upon of the Spirit? I'm going to couple that with, can someone deny the Spirit? And what responsibility do we have for losing touch with the Spirit? That was the discussion we had about grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. So if you have questions about that, go back to the third week. We spent time actually specifically saying, it seems that power of the Spirit we're looking for is not always evident. And we talked about the idea that we need to walk in a certain way. And we need to partner with the Spirit in a certain way. And many of us don't see that. That is the grieving of the Spirit that we talked about. Specifically, when we're talking about sins that break intimacy with God and with the community around us. Those seem to be the specific ones that are referenced in Scripture. But it may be other things. So there is some responsibility on us. Again, to be perfectly clear, we all said that every denomination affirms that the Spirit at conversion is indwelling every single person. But the degree to which we want to interact with God in us seems to impact how much of that power we have in our lives. Another question, did the Holy Spirit indwell people before Christ came to earth according to John 7? No. That's one of the great news about the Holy Spirit. That before the Holy Spirit would come upon certain people, now the Spirit indwells everyone. But it isn't just when Christ came to earth, the actual time is Pentecost. That's the great news about the Pentecost event. God now is in us. Andrew. You said the Holy Spirit came upon 
certain people didn't dwell? Yes, that would be correct, because Jesus' own words are that the indwelling is going to happen in the future at Pentecost. So he would come upon people, he would act in people's lives, but the indwelling, so where you define that, is God living in you on a permanent basis. So it's not, I don't know that God was inside or outside or kind of hanging out on the porch. Like, I'm not trying to say that, but what I'm saying is that the idea that God just is in all believers who believe and permanently resides them and makes their bodies the temple of the Spirit, that is a post-Pentecost concept that did not happen. That's why Jesus said, it's better that I go away. Because this is going to be so good. We, for some reason, either one, didn't believe him or haven't taken much advantage of that. Anyone else on this? Okay. And the last one we covered was, are we capable of anything without the Holy Spirit? And the answer we gave was, yes. We're capable of human-sized efforts. Like, if we want to see, like, God-sized efforts in the church, that requires the power of the Spirit. Uh, and many of us, as we've been talking and conversing in our side conversations, have noted, yeah, it's very possible to have a great church and not really rely on God. It's very possible to be on mission doing God's things in the world without God. But in all cases, we'll be relying totally on what God has already given us. Don't deny that. Natural abilities, talents, those things are good. God gave us all things. But I think God wants more of his church, especially more power. We'll end there tonight. Here's some new questions you probably haven't heard. Can you pray to the Holy Spirit? Our prayers to the Holy Spirit are supposed to be structured differently. The Holy Spirit is God, but I do want to say that in our mind... It is sometimes helpful to reflect on the roles that I gave you to try to think for a moment, just like Jesus says, pray to the Father, and we pray to the Father, or we pray in Jesus' name. There are times when you want to think, is this something that is the domain of the Spirit, that I should at least be thinking about the role of the Spirit specifically? It seems that at least for us, if we didn't have any kind of reference like that, we would be very tempted to go back to what everybody does, which is go, I don't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit, so I'll just focus on the Father, or I'll just focus on the Son. Right? which maybe the Holy Spirit would be happy to have you do, which is that's his focus, is to focus on Jesus. I mean, just on that point alone, like we have, we're like, I don't know when to speak to you, so I'm just not going to, but I want a relationship with you. That would be strange, right? Can the Holy Spirit use an unbaptized person? Uh, this question I spent some time thinking about. Uh, I guess the answer is the Spirit can do whatever the Spirit wants. The Spirit can use whoever the Spirit wants. The Spirit is God. God does what God wants to do. But what I want to be clear about that we kind of tangled a little bit with in, in our discussion was the Spirit indwells believers. What the Spirit will do, I mean, we have Old Testament examples where the Spirit came upon people and they, were, they wouldn't classify them as believers, but something happened. So the Spirit can do whatever they want. God can do whatever he wants. Uh, but I just want to be clear that I think that that's the line of demarcation that maybe the person was asking about, but I don't know. Yes? When you say unbaptized, like physically someone that has not been dunked in water or? Yes, that's true. So if you're a believer but you haven't been baptized and the Holy Spirit couldn't dwell you and that order is actually shown in the book of Acts at times, right? And we're going to kind of get there. So that's possible. If the person meant an unbaptized, like an unspirit baptized person, talking about a second baptism, then I would say the answer is yes. If the person thinks that you need a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, I believe the Holy Spirit can still use you Right? Because even people who take a Pentecostalist view will say that just, you're just not operating the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but nobody thinks the Holy Spirit is left, and nobody thinks the Holy Spirit can't work in you and do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. Okay? Maybe that's a clearer way of saying it. I said it better that time. Here's two more questions. Can you have a healthy walk with God without knowing or understanding the Holy Spirit? Uh, 
Again, we could quibble over what the word healthy means. But you know what? Uh, I, I'd like to side with the answer of no. God, I mean, God gave us the gift of God in us. And refers to that gift as the promise of the Father, as the deposit of our future inheritance. This is something God wanted for us. Jesus, as he was leaving and telling his disciples to go, I said the first week, but his next words were, wait. Even before the important mission you're about to go on, wait. Wait for the power of the Spirit. We're going to see as we end tonight that the Father wants us to have the Spirit. So I would say God knows what's best for us. Can you walk without God? Can you walk with God without knowing or understanding the Holy Spirit? Sure. I'm not trying to create like some sort of new test for salvation, new test for being a disciple. You must know everything about the Spirit. There are plenty of Christians who don't, obviously. That's why there's such an industry of writing books about it. But would it be healthier? Would it be better? Would God desire for you to know him, all parts of him, including the Spirit? Yes, absolutely. I can't waver on that. Otherwise, why would we do this series? I mean, I, I thought it was important enough today, if we only had one more series to do, this would be it, because I feel this is something that is lacking in so many of us, and we're walking around with these dry spiritual lives where Jesus said, I will give you living water. What was the living water he talked about? He said in the next verse, it's the Holy Spirit. So I think he wants you to have it. How does the Holy Spirit make your life better or more effective? I think was the flip of that question. Like now it sounds like we're focusing on us. Like, is this good for me? Like, could I have a better life because of it? I would say, look at the roles I passed out. Those are some amazing things that you probably would want to receive from God as he's made those available. Um, is your, are you going to be prettier, happier, more successful, wealthier? I don't know. If that's the better we're talking about. But if we're talking about like, can I live better into the way that God intended my life to be? Yeah, absolutely knowing about the Spirit is very important as a starting point. You can't have a relationship, you can't have intimacy with somebody you don't even know. Our problem is we've got to get past the knowing here to knowing personally. But it starts with at least getting some of the basics down. Hey, look at that meter. It's doing pretty good, huh? Yeah. Woo! <laughs> I should have this meter in every talk, right? <laughs> You'll be more engaged. Oh, one more. Can the Holy Spirit be earned? Can you lose the Holy Spirit? Let me take the second one last. You cannot lose the Spirit if you're a believer because he indwells believers. And that was the specific question we addressed for almost a whole week. Like, if we don't see the power of the Spirit evident of our lives, has he left the building? No. No. Because all Christians believe that we're indwelled at the time that we become followers of Christ. Uh, can the Holy Spirit be earned? We covered that in the story of Simon, the sorcerer in the book of Acts, who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. I think that in our own Christian lives, we think maybe if I don't doubt, maybe if God favors me, I think this is a gift God wants to give to all, himself. I think that's the kind of God we serve. So I don't know that we earn the Spirit, but again, if we're going back up to can we lose touch with the Spirit, do we have any responsibility there? Yes, but the Spirit isn't going anywhere. He just may not be as active empowering your life when your life isn't a life worth empowering at that moment. Yes? Difficult for that for me, that was my question, was um, there does seem to be like, not earn like pay for or whatever, and it's probably an unhealthy view, like if I do this, then I'll get this. But there seems to be some sort of correlation of the way that we live to like how active the spirit can be in our life, meaning like 
like you were saying, sin, or like trying to live a, a holier life or, or whatever. So it's weird because again, you don't want like the motivation, like I'm gonna do this so that I can have this, but there's some kind of a correlation there. I do agree, and that's why, that's why we go back to the idea of grieving the spirit or quenching the spirit, because everyone seems to observe, although we may not like it. What a lot of people observe is when you are not living your life in a way that God is intimate with you because of the things that you're doing. Let's call it sin. Let's call it out. When we are living that place, the spirit seems to just kind of sit back a little bit, withdraw. We can grieve the spirit. We can quench the spirit. And we said again, like we think, what kind of weak God do we have that we can insult and grieve and quench? But that's exactly because God is so powerful and so loving that those things would even break the relationship that he's trying to have. And I wonder if it's because it's so close to us because really the spirit is like actually indwelling in us. So it's like closer to the sin almost that we're experiencing. So like it would make sense, like if we're supposed to be the temple housing God, that the kind of dirty, dirtier we are, so to speak. Yeah, we think of us being the temple of God as kind of a metaphor. But like if it's a reality that God is in us, then a lot of the things that we allow ourselves to do, uh, we would never do in the presence of God. And yet God is present at all times in us. And I think that's the part that really gets people. Now, an important adjunct to that that we got to look at is we like the idea of, hey, look, I'm saved. It's not about what you do. It's all by grace. It's all those things, right? But we know that that's about salvation. That's about justification. But there are other things that come in the Christian life. And they, even those verses immediately about talking about salvation as we read from Tozer recently, like you cannot see salvation that does not eventually result in these other things, right? And that's right at Ephesians 2. Same kind of concept. So yes, it may not be a condition of salvation, may not be a condition of God's love, may not be a condition of all those things, but if you're also saying, and I also want to be fully empowered by the Spirit and all these things in my life, but I want to do whatever I want. Uh, that's nowhere in Scripture and I don't think makes any sense. I mean, it's amazing enough that we'd even find God's salvation in that way. Okay, next screen. Is the Holy Spirit's power manifested in individuals or in the church? Uh, both. The church is us, together, united in Christ. It's both. So I think it's happening there. But I did say, and I do believe, that the Holy Spirit's power is magnified when we're together. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that the community is so important, not just so you can feed people and sell homes and lay it at the apostles' feet, but because the Spirit worked through the deliberation of the apostles, the work through the councils that were going on, through the people praying together. The, it was so much more evident in that community, evident in that power, and people were attracted to the way it played out in community, not just individual one-on-one -on -one solo actors. So, yes, the Spirit is totally active in your life, and I would even have to say, in what sense, since there's at least 18 different things we put down on that list there in front of you, uh, but many of those are active individually, if not all of them, but I would say, even more importantly, do not neglect to meet together. Go back to our series on the purpose of the local church. Is the indwelling of the Spirit dependent on understanding of this reality? No. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. The Holy Spirit does some or all of those things that are the roles of the Spirit that are on there, uh, and sometimes we're not aware of them. As, as I said, God will do what God is going to do. But there are places where we partner with the Spirit to see that as well. Okay, So one of them might be to partnering with the Spirit in intimacy to see that power revealed in our lives. 
Some of them involve like the disciplines that we subject ourselves to voluntarily so that we can see sanctification worked out, not because we're doing it on our own, but because we're partnering with the Spirit who's already at work and we're trying to actually meet the Spirit and partner with the Spirit in doing those acts. So indwelling is just something that happens to the believer. God resides in you as a believer. God will do what God will do. So it's not dependent on our understanding of it, but our attitude and posture does matter in some of the things the Spirit does. What matters about the Holy Spirit beyond spiritual gifts, somebody asked. Well, the spiritual gifts, if you'll notice on that list, is one of the things. So I would say the other 17. Uh, And there are others I couldn't even put on the list because I didn't do an exhaustive search of every place that the Spirit is cited. Um, But the question comes because sometimes... We, you know, when I hear this question, I think the person who asked the question is probably thinking, so I've heard about the Holy Spirit in spiritual gifts. So is there anything beyond that? Yes. And of course, these questions were asked at the beginning of the series. They're raw and honest. So I just want to point out that's just one thing. Is guidance from the Holy Spirit necessary for salvation? That's a similar question. It reduces the Holy Spirit's role to guidance. Guiding us is one of the Spirit's roles, right? But there are many, many others now that we've learned about Uh, And I would say guidance from the Spirit is not necessary for salvation. We're not trying to add uh, layers of what salvation is. If you want to know what salvation is, join us for our next series. We're going to be taking it apart. (laughs) We'll find out exactly what's necessary for salvation. Can you keep it? Can you lose it? Yes? Can you say guidance from the Holy Spirit is what leads you to Christ? In that essence, it would be yes. So maybe I've misunderstood the word guidance. If you took the word guidance out, is the Holy Spirit necessary for salvation? If you just said that, thank you, that's a very good corrective, then I would change my answer to yes, because one of the things the Holy Spirit does is bring us to a knowledge of Christ. Like we could not even acknowledge who Christ is. So if that's what we meant by the question, yes. But I took guidance to mean the kind of role of the Spirit that many of us look to the Spirit like, hey, is the Holy Spirit available for consultation? Who should I marry? Right, that kind of guidance, right? (laughs) What are the boundaries and limitations of the Holy Spirit, if any? I would say... First answer that really that I looked around was none. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, Now, within God's self, God may say, as Jesus said, the Spirit will glorify me, and the Spirit will testify about me, and the Spirit will say the things that I've given the Spirit to say. Uh, We tried to wrap our mind a little bit around how God kind of gives different domains to God's self. But outside of those boundaries and limitations, which are totally within God's knowledge completely, like we can only scratch the surface of trying to understand the triune relationship, there are no boundaries as they relate to us. The Holy Spirit is God. How can you know it's actually the Holy Spirit speaking to you instead of your subconscious mind being active? Again, the assumption in the question is that the role of the Spirit is to speak to us and tell us what to do, which is one part of the Spirit. And I would say this directly relates to our Hearing God series, where we actually tackled this question, so I won't go into it in any depth. I'll just say that is something that we always have to struggle with when we're dealing with hearing from God, but we covered that in good amount of detail in our Hearing God series. Um, and in that series, you may as here refer to God quite a bit, just you will be thinking that that's one of the roles of the Spirit within God's self, so you can just think about that. But just, I brought that up and I put it up there because I thought, interesting, Uh, It seems that we've, again, this question could reduce the role of the Spirit to just speaking to us or telling us what to do. Here's the metaphysical question I refer to. Since the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three in one, are you not engaging all parts of the Trinity when you engage any part of God? Very good question. 
I don't know that I could ever give you the actual answer of how this works. Uh, but I will tell you that my feeling is that this is what got us into trouble in the first place. We kind of didn't know what to do with the spirit. We figured, well, he's kind of included in the mix. You know, he gets in the baptismal formula, like, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We like tack him on there, right? And that's what led us to such a place where we had forgotten to even focus on what is the role of the Spirit, and just to say it in plain English, how important the Spirit's role is to the life of the believer. So this might even be true in some way. I'm not going to tell you dogmatically you should not do this, because I don't know how the triune relationship works. I've tried to understand as best I could. It's a mind bender. But I do know that our tendency is to forget the Holy Spirit. And there are just too many important things the Spirit does for us to do that. So if it would help you as a device, just like I said, a device is to call the Spirit He, even though we don't really say dogmatically that He has a gender, but it's better than saying it, then I would say as a device also think about the Spirit. Relate to the Spirit. Try to think, is this a role that the Spirit has? How do I relate to the Spirit as a person? The most asked questions of the series were, on your cards at least, is baptism by the Holy Spirit synonymous with receiving him when you're saved? Is baptism by the Holy Spirit different than water baptism? What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to fall upon a person or group? I'd like you to respond at this point because you may have backgrounds that I don't have. I want to tell you that in response to this question, I told you from the beginning of the series I was not going to cover this. And then so many questions came through that I said, ah, oh, man. So I went... <laughs> can't believe I just did that. That's a little fox from Dora that does that. Dang it. <laughs> I'm retiring next, next week. <laughs> I've officially gotten beyond young adults to little children. Um, so I went and read perspectives on spirit baptism to really be able to answer this question because it's a difficult question. If you want the short answer, here's my short answer. I'm not going to tell you what you need to believe. I tell you, if you really want to know this subject, read the book. But after reading the different perspectives, I will tell you that it seems to me that the Pentecostal perspective is not the best perspective. What is the Pentecostal perspective? Let me just explain it. First, they believe, like all believers do, that you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit upon your salvation. Every Christian agrees with that. But if you take a Pentecostal view, you believe that that is not the fullness of the Spirit. You need to pray to receive a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. So whether you're baptized by water or not, which is a public display of your stance with Christ, and that you are in Christ, that you die and rise again in Christ, whether you do that or not, you're indwelled at the time you believe. But if you want to see the fullness of the Spirit unleashed in your life, you need to pray to receive the Holy Spirit, a second baptism. If I brought in a Pentecostal speaker right here, if they were standing here, they would say the reason that you live a somewhat empty life with the Spirit is because you have not received the baptism of the Spirit. That this emptiness that you feel that you're trying to explain, like, you know, well, maybe it's grieving the Spirit, maybe we just don't know about the Spirit. It's like, no, you need to pray to receive the Spirit and the Spirit will fall upon you, which is what does it mean for the Spirit to fall upon a person? The Spirit will come, come immediately, and you will know unmistakably because tenet one Pentecostal is you need to pray for the baptism. Tenet two that makes a person a Pentecostal is 
the initial evidence that you've been baptized by the Spirit is you will begin to speak in tongues. So there won't be any mistake about did it happen, did it not happen? The Holy Spirit will fall on you, and the first thing that will happen is you will begin to speak in tongues. Monique. Well, what I will say about that, and I agree, like, I don't necessarily think you need, like, a second baptism. Like, I, I do believe the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you from the get-go, um, or necessarily that it has to manifest in tongues because everyone has different spiritual gifts. But there is something to be said for the fact that they're searching and praying for it, and so I think that could be a helpful tool. Like, if you don't feel like you know the fullness of the Spirit, not necessarily for a second baptism or to manifest in a specific way, but it's not a bad idea to be like, Lord, like, I want to feel the Holy Spirit. I want to know what that is. I want to see the realization of that in my life and feel the fullness and, like, to search it, to pray for that could actually be a really helpful tool. Not necessarily thinking it's going to manifest specifically in that certain way, but... Okay. Peter? Um, just to understand it better, is there... what Or what measure, if any, is there kind of internally within Pentecostalism to make sure it's, like, legitimate and maybe not, like... I think they call it, like, a fleshy imitation, you know? How, you know, how do they... Legit, you know, this, this is legitimate tongues, this is not. What's the difference to that? I can't answer that directly, but I will affirm what you said, which is there is a difference of belief in any tradition. So I don't want to paint sure. all of Pentecostalism with one brush because there is a diversity where a few will say tongues is not necessary. It's not always the initial gift, although that's more of the charismatic movement, right? And if you want a definition for charismatic, they were influenced by Pentecostalism, but they didn't form separate denominations. They did it from within the Catholic Church, the mainline churches. And they are more likely, although they have a difference of belief, they are more likely to say tongues is not a necessary evidence, but a second baptism of the Spirit is, right? So that's, so they're, they're cousins on the, you need to pray for the blessing of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Spirit. They use all those words, right? But they do kind of differ for the most part amongst themselves within those movements, but even between the two movements on whether tongues is required or not. What you bring up though about fleshy tongues or people who believe that way is interesting. It's one of the reasons that I think there's an issue that I think Pentecostals have to deal with, and that is there's been studies done that if your church believes in the evidence of tongues being the first instance of the Holy Spirit, that you have a much, much higher instance of tongues happening. And if your church believes that it is not necessary, that you will just receive the gifts but not necessarily that one, the instance of speaking in tongues is much lower. So it almost seems like the expectation put on the congregation or the denomination affects the outcome. That's a little strange. That means that there's something going on. I don't want to use something as crass as are you psyching yourself into it. But that's something that, you know, people from the outside go, you need to explain this. It seems a little strange. So there's different beliefs within. Joseph. Okay, having been in a Pentecostal church and charismatic churches, I would say that for the most part, you'll find, yes, they believe second baptism in the Holy Spirit, yes, you need to speak in tongues, but at the same time, you'll find a movement even somewhere in between that says, don't put God, don't put God in a box. And that is kind of where I would come down. And at the same time, you still have this kind of odd, okay, is it tongues, is it not tongues? I think oftentimes, you're right, in the Pentecostal church, there's that expectation they just say, oh yeah, it's tongues, and they just move on. It's almost like they're counting the person to program in other churches. Okay. Monique? Um, just to be the advocate of the other side for a moment. We, you know, we were saying how 
and I don't remember if it was during service or it was recorded, if it was after Exodus or ever, how sometimes people say, oh, I think God is doing this or God's speaking to my life in this way. And we're like, really? I'm not so sure. And we kind of like, we're doubtful, whatever. That's our first reaction is just to kind of reject that. Maybe more people speak in tongues in those churches because more people are asking for that or are more connected to the spirit or are praying for that specific thing or like, I don't want to be so quick. And that, I mean, I know that you can be influenced and that sort of thing happens, like if you study psychology or whatever, but I don't want to be completely dismissive either because it is a different environment where people are welcoming the spirit in a way that other churches are not. And for me specifically, when I was a kid, I went to church camp and it was like a four square church and I had only been to church for like three weeks and I like went to camp with these people. I thought they were crazy kind of. And they were like, let's pray for speaking in tongues. And I told the pastor's wife specifically, I was like, I don't think I believe in that. That's weird. She's like, okay, well, then you don't have to do it. Just go sit over there. We'll just pray. I rejected it the whole time. I was like seven years old. Two weeks later, I'm just sitting alone. I'm like, you know, God, maybe there's something to it. And maybe there is like something about your Holy Spirit. So I don't know if you want me to do that, like do that. I never would have experienced that or even prayed for it had I not even seen it. And I spoke in tongues like right away. And I know it's weird. I never talk about my gift because it is weird. It's almost kind of like, and like you're saying embarrassing or whatever, because it's like the weird hocus pocus stuff. But that was legit. Like I had no control over that. I was seven years old, had never seen it, had never experienced it, had never whatever. And I would never have even thought to be open to the spirit or pray for it had I not, you know, I don't know, been around it in any way. So there's something to be said for that. Okay. Ben? Yeah. Um and I remember reading in the book of Acts where Paul found a group of believers, disciples, and then he asked them, do you have the Holy Spirit? And they said, no. I don't know if you wanted to comment on that, but it seemed like there was a, like, they believed that there was still this act of praying. Right. Let me come right back to that. We'll take Peter's comment and I'll move forward. Yeah, um, two real quick ones. So uh, with that kind of really well-known um, Paul verse that's like, you know, if you're going to do tongues, do it this way. Does that kind of mainly focus on the spiritual gifting of it and less on the spirit and, and how the agency of that? Okay, I, that was, I guess, a question. Look, th let, me, let me explain why I think there's some critique that we should fairly give about Pentecostalism. Let me just give you my perspective after reading what all the different theologians have to say. First of all, most of the evidence from Scripture comes from about five verses in Acts. Five. Now, there are other things that they use, but they're basically five verses in Acts. I can get rid of two of them very quickly. One of them is the Pentecost event itself, which is kind of like that's a unique event to begin with. So you're down to four, and I can get rid of a couple more pretty quickly. One is the one, Ben, that I can talk about in a minute. So you're kind of down to like three, and I think one of those is actually doubtful too. So on a good day, three. On a rainy day, two. Here's another thing, is that if you're going to read the book of Acts this way, you have to make a theological decision that narrative text where Luke is writing as a historian is meant to impart theological truth that we're all supposed to live under. Now, I'm not saying that historical and narrative text never does that. I'm just saying that in some examples, like the one Peter is citing from 1 Corinthians, Paul spends a long time instructing about gifts, three chapters talking about the gifts and how they're to be used. So it's very difficult to take two or three verses from Acts that describe an event versus three chapters where Paul is explaining how they're supposed to work. One of those famous explanations is when Paul says, do all speak in tongues? He's asking a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. But he's not saying all should. In fact, he's making the exact opposite case. People in the body receive different gifts. 
Now that doesn't have anything to do with whether a second baptism is necessary, but it's an, it's an example of how you look in the book of Acts and you say, aha, you see there they prayed to receive the Holy Spirit. That's normative for the whole church. It's like, but that actually contradicts Paul's instructions. So at best you have a contradiction. Why are we favoring Acts over Paul's three chapter explanation of the gift? That's an example of how you critique this kind of thing. Um, so they do have a greater emphasis on narrative description rather than what I would call the didactic prescription. So they favor description sometimes over prescription. Here's some funny things to me personally. Pentecostalism is a rebirth movement. It's a renewal movement. It hasn't been around. It started like in the 1900s. Its main takeoff was 1906 in the Azusa Revival. Not this city, <laughs> but in Los Angeles, not far from here on Azusa Street. You know, it puts me in a theologically weird place to think, so for after the book of Acts is done and a little bit later for like, let's call it what, 1800 years, we just didn't know any of this? That the spirit just went to sleep or was not active? Or they would say, we were not seeking the spirit at all. We had forgotten about the spirit. Hey, I said amen to the fact that these people have woken us up to the need for the spirit. We owe a huge amount of our reclamation of focus on the spirit to being woken up by this revival. But it's still relatively new, and that puts me in a place where I'd think, so we'd have to conclude that all the people that came before had forgotten the spirit and did not know these things. Another thing that always makes me feel uncomfortable is this was started in America. <laughs> so when I think that there's like American movements that have now spread all over the world, like I think I'm, I'm just always skeptical, like, wait a minute, you know, because it's not that nothing good comes from America spiritual. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that Sometimes we take the American paintbrush and, you know, like we put something on top of it, a veneer, and then you go like, was that us or is that original? Have we discovered something or have we remade it? So that to me is just something that people need to explore more, the cultural implications of this being birthed in America. Joseph. I think on, on the historical thing, yeah, it was re rebirthed in early, early 1900s. At the same time, I think some of that relates to lack of education, control, government things, other things going on in the world for a large portion of that time. Well, they were reacting to a strong liberal movement within the church. One that took God out of everything, one where the miraculous was dead. It was just like, you know, like just brain stuff and, and a weakened God at that. I mean, you could say it was, it's not just deism, it's a lot of things. But I think it was a, maybe you could say it was such a strong correction, such a great direction to go in that we might have gone just a little bit too far. We sometimes overcorrect. Um, charismatics in the 1960s, when their movements started to rise, they kind of pulled it back in a little bit about the initial evidence being the spirit. But think about the implications. If you truly believe that the initial evidence of the power of the spirit in your life is tongues, I can think of a lot of people historically in the church that were powerful, powerful leaders who led movements who did not speak about speaking in tongues. I'm not saying that there aren't great leaders who did speak in tongues. There are many of those too. But what would it mean for those others? Were they doing it just all on their own? Can we really say that the Holy Spirit was not empowering that ministry when you see a whole revival but tongues did not accompany it? Uh, I don't remember Martin Luther saying anything about tongues, at least not to my knowledge. Uh, he's before the Pentecostal movement, so he's one of those people that forgot about the Spirit. Yet you could say, wow, that was a total movement that changed a lot of things. So it just puts us in a place, I think, that's a little bit strange. But I don't want to tell you dogmatically. I'm just saying those are the things that I noticed that seem very compelling. Let me show you a couple verses from scripture so I'm not just talking out loud. I'm gonna make the best case for them. First, Ben talks about Acts 19, where 
Paul encounters the Ephesian believers. It says believers. And he asks them specifically, you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit? They're like, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit, right? They're like, like most churches today. <laughs> like, we haven't, who? <laughs> but in that Acts 19 verse, he says, he quizzes them further. What baptism did you receive? And they say, the baptism of John the Baptist. That's the only baptism they knew. They hadn't even received, if you read carefully, Jesus' baptism. So apparently the word believers used by Luke is the source of enormous controversy because it probably refers to believers who believe the message of John the Baptist. They weren't aware of the belief in Jesus or any of that. That's the best reading of that verse that I've seen from different perspectives. Now, if you're a Pentecostal, you're like, no way. They were believers in Jesus Christ, and they had not received the Spirit yet. They hadn't even heard of him. So it shows that you can have a second baptism. But he quizzes them, and we have it recorded. They talk about John the Baptist's baptism. So they must have been disciples of John the Baptist. That's the best explanation there. But that's actually not the best case for Pentecostals. This one is. It's in Acts 8. We read it a couple weeks ago. Let me just read it to you because uh, it's a little small on the screen. This is an example where believers believed, were baptized, they believed in Jesus, and the Spirit comes later. It says, when they believed Philip, so Philip's the one that's talking to him, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When the apostles in Jerusalem, so this must be a little bit later because you know, they didn't have email. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That's the best verse because it seems like that's the exact case that they want to make. Now, they cite some others, by the way, the story of Cornelius. They claim that Cornelius was a believer in Jesus, and then he gets the Holy Spirit later when Peter shows up after the vision of the blanket with all the different foods on it. I, you know, when I read that verse, clearly, it doesn't look like Cornelius is a believer in Jesus Christ. It says he was God-fearing. But that doesn't mean he was a believer in Jesus Christ. I think that's what Peter was doing, was telling him about Jesus Christ. There's a lot of quibbles about their verse. So put those verses aside, like Cornelius, put that aside. Acts 19, put that aside. This is a pretty good verse for them. But it's like one verse. Yes? My one question would be, uh, maybe there is, because Jesus' command is to, name the, to be baptized in the Father, Son, and Spirit. So I'm wondering why Luke only said baptizing the name of the Lord Jesus. So it might be strange, it might be minor, it might be you know, really overdoing it. But maybe there's the chance that they weren't you know, baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, and there was even a lack of Trinitarian understanding. Yeah, some people have said that. Other people say that they had not, they've been baptized, but they didn't actually believe yet, right? But the, the problem with that is it's Philip. And we see how Philip in other parts of Acts goes along. In fact, later he's actually dealing with the Ethiopian and different, like we see what Philip is doing. So we have a little bit of history of how Philip was, was he's not like somebody who kind of like got half the message right. So there's a good chance that Philip has it right because a lot of, let's say, let's say traditional evangelical view of this is, yes, it probably wasn't an all the way through baptism or something was missing. I think a better thing to say is, wow, I'm not sure what Luke was intending to communicate here. 
But the question you have to ask was, was Luke intending that the whole church normatively believe that there's a second baptism because of this one verse? Uh, and would we just say, hey, Paul, I don't know what you're talking about in this other stuff, but that's kind of, you know, all the rest of your epistles, sorry, Luke wins. I mean, that's actually the view you kind of have to take in some way. Um, that's the trouble. Joseph? I think at the same time, that the time, the time gap you mentioned there, them going to Samaria, they very well could have spread, spread the faith wrongly on their own after receiving from Philip. I mean, there's all sorts of different other things that could have happened there. Okay. You know, when you wrote narrative in the first century, there could be time gaps just between the sentences that aren't noted that actually could make a huge impact on how you read it. And that's why it's, you have to be careful when you read narrative text that way. Look, I want to be very clear about something. I'm not trying to tell you which way to believe on this point because I mean, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Two, you really care about this subject deeply? Read this book. Uh, read the first like three, three different people talking and you'll already get an idea. My conclusion after reading it is I still think that the people who take a non-Pentecostal view of this have the, probably the correct answer. Um, but we owe a debt of gratitude to people who have reintroduced us to the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't be having this series. We wouldn't have this conversation. These people wouldn't be writing books if it wasn't for somebody reawakening us to the fact that we'd forgotten about the Holy Spirit. We differ about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, but we all yearn to be filled with the Spirit. We all yearn, whether it's not grieving the Spirit and growing more intimate, or whether it's just an outpouring and a blessing that comes upon you. We should all be yearning for more of the Spirit. Last week I ended with this question, and I want to do it one more time. Do you think that the Spirit wants this church to live our lives barely connected to the power that's available to us? Do you think that's the life that God wanted for the church, for you? Of course not. God wanted to completely bless us with more of him and more of his power and to see his church unleash the way it originally was. We have lost touch with it. Whether you take the traditional answer, the Pentecostal answer, the charismatic answer, we need more of the Spirit. I'm going to close with these verses from the Lord about the gifts that he wants to give to us. This comes from Luke 11. Jesus has just finished telling this story up here about how people, if they're persistent enough, get what they want. And he's telling the story of a man knocking on the door in the middle of the night saying, I need something for the guests that have come. And he says that even if you won't get out of bed because of friendship to help your friend, you will get out of bed just because they're knocking at your door and being persistent and shaming you into getting up and helping them. That's the perspective he's saying. Then he says, now think about that for a moment. And he says this, so I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you, you though who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give? Can anyone finish this? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. By the way, if you answered give good gifts, you're also right. That's the Matthew passage. 
But in the Luke passage, he actually specifies what the good gift is. This is not a big passage about asking you get whatever you want under the Christmas tree. This is about ask your father because he knows how to give good gifts to you. If you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more your heavenly father. But what is the gift he wants to give you most, the one that's actually cited? How much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The one truth that has come out of that related to this that I think was a profound truth, and I think it comes from Tozer, was every one of you will have as much of God as you want. You will experience as much of God as you want. If there are things in life you want more than God, you will get, well, you will get to experience them or experience not having them, but you will have as much of God as you want. He wants to fill you. He already indwells you. He wants you to worship him above all else and to be the sole focus of worship in your life, to cast out all, all idols and to empower us. And he wants that gift to come to us and to fill us. And the question is, are we really willing? Is it just a convenience to have the Spirit? Or are we willing to set aside everything that would hinder us from having the power of the Spirit in our lives to be those kinds of people? I think for most of us, we have to grow in that area. And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking that we grow in that area, that we ask for that good gift and ask how it is that we handle it. And if I, in any way, have misspoken in anything about the Spirit during this whole series, I pray that he correct me and correct our understanding. Because knowing who he is and knowing him intimately is of paramount importance. That's the reason we did this series. You want to take a risk? Let's pray together for the Holy Spirit to fill our lives. And I'm going to ask you, why don't we get off our butts and kneel and do something different for a change to let the posture of our bodies actually inform what we're going to do. Lord God, we begin with a desire for you that is unexplained. And for some of us, unexamined. And we confess first and foremost that we allow the things in our life to stand so they obscure the view of who you are. But there are times when we scarcely know you. So Lord, open our eyes to see you clearly. Grant us a supernatural love and affection for who you are. Something we can't understand or explain. Something that draws us closer to you. Thank you, Lord, that you're a father that has blessed us and even blessed people who don't even know you throughout the world because you love to lavish us as your children and that you love us all regardless of our posture towards you. But Lord, turn our face towards you. Bring us closer to you. Lord, empower us. Fill us more with the spirit who already indwells us. And if anything, Lord, we desire more of you. If anything stands in the way of that, remove it. Take it away from us. Lord, we dare pray that you would strip us even of our comfort, even of the things that we cling to, even the idols we have in our lives, because nothing is more important than you. And we declare that, daring to say those words in prayer and agreement together here, that you would remove all that hinders and fill us more with your spirit. Bring us into an intimacy and a power that no one can explain. Give us a life, Lord, that would make absolutely no sense without you, that would not work without you. Give us those things we pray. In your precious name, thank you for this series, Lord. Amen.